1: So it's a major uncertainty whether and when sports come back, either on the field or even on TV. It's all going to depend on sponsors, advertisers and, of course, consumers. Let's bring in somebody who's been thinking a lot about this now. He used to be former, or he is former, president of CBS Sports. He is now founder and president of Pilsen Communications. I'm talking about Neil Pilsen. Neil, thanks so much for joining.
2: Good morning. Nice to be with you.
1: So we have, you know, the NFL season supposed to be starting up, and yet there really is no NFL plan yet, for example, even though training camps are set to fully begin at the end of this month. what's What are leagues supposed to do at a time like this, Neil?
2: Leagues are, well, the leagues are doing what, uh, what they need to do. They're assessing the data. They're uh, uh, trying to create uh, strategies. Uh, we see different uh, plans in effect for... Uh, the NBA, uh, the NHL, uh, the uh, NFL. Uh, so the, the leagues, are, they're, they're caught between the, uh, you know, the interest of the American public to watch sports and the risks that they have to uh, understand if they're going to put the sports on the air. But uh, all of the professional leagues, uh, including Major League Soccer, uh, do have a plan, they have a strategy, and uh, uh, we'll see how it works out.
0: So, Neil, we know that sports is just a huge, huge multi-billion dollar business. There's rights fees all over the place. And it's, it's a key programming component for a lot of broadcast and cable networks here. But let's start with ESPN. It is a sports network after all. You know, how, how at risk are they here of just, you know, a prolonged shutdown of sports?
2: Well, uh, the answer is in your question. Yes, they are at risk. Uh, they are doing the best they can. With I was watching the Eagles concert last night on <laughs> ESPN. Uh, I've been watching their boxing. I've been watching some of their other programming. Uh, what they've done is they've looked to reduce their costs. Uh, keep in mind that while the networks, uh, including ESPN, have serious revenue shortfalls due to the lack of sports, They are also, I won't use the word enjoying, but they are experiencing some significant cost savings. Uh, They are not paying the rights fees that they would otherwise pay since they're not getting the games, and they're not incurring the production costs, which they would otherwise uh, have to uh, spend to to cover the games. So uh, while the impact is negative in the sense that it's not a... Uh, they make profits, and that's what they're foregoing right now. Uh, it is, uh, they can weather the storm. Uh, they're obviously ESPN is well-financed uh, with a very large uh, company as its its, its owner, Disney. Uh, the other networks, uh, Comcast owns NBC. Uh, uh, CBS is with Viacom, which is not as big a company as Comcast. Comcast. Uh, uh, Fox is a little thinner in terms of their financial strength, uh, given the changes in their corporate structure in the past couple of years. But none of the networks really are, are in danger in, just in terms of the financials on sports. The real problem is what's going to happen next. Uh, and let me give you a quick example. Let's say the NFL comes back. And they're playing their games, and the networks are now responsible to pay rights fees. However, the sponsor market may not be as strong as it normally would be because sponsors are very concerned that the American public is just not in a buying mood. I mean, uh, are you going to buy a car this fall with the COVID experience uh, threatening almost every state in the country? Uh, So it could be that the networks get caught in a situation where the games are being played and they're providing television coverage, but the advertising and sponsor market is not as strong as you would hope, even though the ratings are good. We all expect the ratings are going to be good for sports when they come back, but what we don't know at this point is whether the sponsor and advertising market will be as strong as it normally is for fall sports. Uh, so what means,
1: will happen yeah. to pricing then, Neil? Will there be a big discount for those sponsors that are willing to keep spending and for those advertisers that are willing to keep spending? Or will, you know, networks simply say, look, there are more eyeballs on these. We need to up the price.
2: Well, uh, that's the trick of, of television advertising. There is no, a rate card, but that doesn't mean anything. Uh, If the networks can't sell at the number that they're asking, then they'll drop their number. Uh, Network uh, uh, commercials are like seats on an airplane. Once the plane takes off, you can't sell that seat. Well, once the game takes place, you can't sell that commercial. So what you have is a fluid marketplace with supply and demand, uh, being the determinator in terms of pricing. Uh, it's it's relatively simple. It's very complex in operation. But the networks, if they can't sell their their time, will drop their price to, uh, to the market. And hey. if they can sell their time, then the marketplace will bid for the uh, units and the price will go up.
0: Neil, just real quickly here, do you think uh, consumer behavior maybe changing here. We're streaming more content at home because we're stuck at home. Do you think streaming is going to come to big-time sports packages like the NFL? Will you see Amazon or Facebook bid for a major, major sports package?
2: Uh, not as quickly as some people think, because uh, the, the basic advantage of uh, the networks is they guarantee the pricing. When they buy a long-term deal with the NFL or the NBA, they're guaranteeing Billions of dollars. Uh, It remains to be seen whether Amazon or Google or Netflix is prepared to guarantee Mm. the kind of money that the networks have traditionally provided the leagues. And until that happens, uh, I think you're going to see streaming as a supplementary uh, delivery system and quite effective, but not the primary distribution platform.
0: Got it. Everybody's waiting for that day. I know the leagues are as well to get another... Well-heeled and uh, well-financed set of bidders in there, uh, in addition to the broadcast and cable networks. Neil Pilsen, founder and president of Pilsen Communications, former president of CBS Sports, getting his thoughts on kind of the lay of the land of the sports uh, landscape as this economy tries to reopen and what it means for the media companies uh, that depend so heavily uh, on sports programming uh, for viewership and advertising.
1: State of banks' earnings this morning. So JP Morgan's total trade revenues up 79% year over year, but we also had credit loss provisions higher, and Jamie Dimon saying expect double-digit unemployment through the first half of 2021. Citi also talking about higher loan losses going forward, but also trying to put a brave face forward. And then Wells Fargo, of course, is a whole nother subject. Let's bring in someone who knows all about it. Ken Leone is Global Director of Industry and Equity Research at CFRA. Ken, what are the headlines from this morning's three reports?
3: It's really a, a tale of two stories. Uh, w- banks, obviously, are impacted by the COVID-19 and the recession, and it's affecting loan volumes. It's also impacting the rate, or rate interest rates are much lower. Uh, but offsetting that was the appetite, and that's the consumer. But on the corporate side, the strength that we saw was unparalleled in terms of investment banking and trading, uh, especially in fixed income, uh, but also in equity underwriting. So that kind of buffered uh, a significant decline in terms of performance of lending. Um, and unfortunately, this being the first quarter, a full quarter of the impact of COVID 19, we're likely to still see weakness in the third quarter. So the road to recovery is looking to be U-shaped uh, into 2021.
0: All right, Ken, let's focus a little bit on Wells Fargo because the number that really jumped out at me was the $9.5 billion provision for credit losses. That's more than a consensus of $4.9 billion. So obviously, when you think about Wells Fargo, Fargo, you think about the consumer, you think about small and mid-sized businesses. So that's really an ominous tone, isn't it? Uh,
3: it is, but I, I think, Wells Fargo kind of undershot the mark on building credit reserves in the first quarter. Um, it was a half or even less than its peers of Bank of America or J.P. Morgan. So, so I think part of this, to answer your question, is catch-up, okay. um, but it is significant, and Wells Fargo highly dip- relies on its community bank and consumer loans.
1: Ken, Citigroup, you know, setting aside $7.9 billion more for sour loans and JP Morgan obviously is setting aside more than anticipated as well. Why are loans beginning to go bad at such a rate when the Fed stepped in to try and stop some of this?
3: It's actually building reserves. So these are provisions or charges um, to the bank. The actual delinquencies or loan losses are likely over the next few quarters. Think about this. This is the first full quarter, yet the banks really don't have total visibility to the health of the consumer or small business who have benefited in terms of forbearance or subsidies from the federal government. So the banks are being very conservative. They have significant capital. And as
0: I think we might have lost uh, Ken there, Vani, uh, but I think he's saying – you I was inching his comments about some of these banks – you know, don't have great visibility So, uh, but they're still, you know, taking these big loan loss reserves, I think, in anticipation that this is going to be an economy that is lower for longer.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's very, very telling, because right now, it seems like things are being managed pretty well, right? The consumer is still spending to a certain extent. And, uh, you know, even as we're seeing mass unemployment, we're also seeing mass job creation, again, you know, month over month. At the same time, if we don't have continued fiscal stimulus from the government, who knows what the situation will be like. And uh, obviously, the banks don't know any more than we do as to what's going to come out of Washington, D.C. over the next literally two weeks, Paul. I mean, that funding for the $600 per week extra for each consumer who's out of work, that goes away in two weeks unless Congress does something about it.
0: Yeah. So we have Ken back. Ken Leone joins us once again, Global Director of Research at CFRA. So, Ken, going to that point, what are the banks saying about the consumer here? Um, You know, are they, uh, Jamie Dimon's commentary seem to be quite conservative on the margin.
3: Uh, That's right. And and the issue really relates to um, employment, Um, particularly if we have adverse scenarios where unemployment, let's say for the U.S. economy, is still in the mid-teens. That will be kind of a dire outlook for the rest of this year. So that's a worst case. You've got to remember banks hope for the best, but they prepare for the worst. And that's the buildup of these credit reserves. Uh, keep in mind, though, that uh, what the banks are following is in line with the Federal Reserve uh, stress test and their uh, new scenarios on COVID back in late June, where uh, when you look at those 33 banks that participated in these stress tests, uh, the historical framework was a worst case of a $433 billion. with covid with the unemployment levels that you've mentioned before, uh, possibly mid-teen, it's $800 billion. So what the banks have to do is, before the reality, they have to build reserves. The flip side, if we have this conversation later this year, 2021, is if the economic scenario is better, then you get a reverse of these credit reserves, which would boost profitability.
0: Absolutely. So we'll keep an eye on those. Um, We've got still more banks to go uh, tomorrow uh, and Thursday as well. Ken Leone, Global Director of Industry and Equity Research at CFRA Research. We appreciate uh, his commentary on the banks. And again, kind of a mixed bag coming out here, but the consistent theme across the three banks that we saw today is very high single digit in terms of billion dollar uh, loan loss reserves uh, as they uh, prepare for a, a weaker economy for some time to come. We'll see what we get from the big investment banks tomorrow. Well, when you have Max Neeson, there's so many ways you can go when discussing uh, this coronavirus uh, on a global scale. Max Neeson is a biotech pharma and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, but Max, today, I want to start with containment or lack thereof. It's, it's, it's something that's come back uh, to the forefront of discussion of this virus. Containment in such key states as California, Texas, Florida. Where are we in some of those hotspot states? Are they bending the curve at all?
4: Uh, too early to say definitively, but probably not. And and the reason is that, um, you know, with the exception of, of California, as of, you know, this week, uh, none of them have really taken – Um, especially aggressive steps, you know, really big steps back in in terms of, um, you know, the sorts of businesses that are open. When you have community spread at a certain level, um, you know, anything other than that either isn't going to contain the virus at all or is going to take a really long time over which um, you'll have a lot of infections and deaths to do so. So um, I'll be curious to see if, if California's move uh, which I, I will note comes on the ba- the back of data that that on kind of a statewide per capita level is actually not as concerning as what you see out of Florida or Arizona. If that'll um, you know pressure some other states to take uh, some more aggressive action, given the, the sort of rates of of new infection that they're seeing.
1: Max, what's the latest thinking on herd immunity?
4: Um, the, the latest, I mean, it, I can give you my opinion on herd immunity, but there, there are sort of two factors. One is whether, you know, it's even possible to achieve via natural infection, this being the, the form of the argument you hear sometimes that, you know, it's going to take so long to get a vaccine and be so economically damaging to mitigate the virus that we should just sort of let it run comparatively free in order to retain it. But the thing that we don't know and and still don't know is the degree to which, um, natural immunity is conferred by infection or whether it lasts, and there's mixed evidence on this. Um, you know, some data that, that antibody levels fall over time. This doesn't confirm that, that people broadly can get reinfected, um, but it does suggest that, that there isn't sort of rock-solid evidence that, that there is definitely going to be durable immunity for everybody. So, um, you know, that that's one reason to doubt that strategy. The second is just the numbers required to get there even if you do have, you know, durable and consistent immunity, which we're not sure about, are enormous. You know, it's, it's 50, 60, 70 and, percent. And to get there, um, if you just do the really simple math, even at, you know, a relatively low implied fatality rate under one percent, um, you know, that that's a lot of deaths. And on top of that, um, we also don't know the percentage of people that have lasting significant consequences from infection. So um, it's a wildly irresponsible and dangerous strategy.
0: All right. So if herd immunity is not a uh, a valid strategy, then obviously the focus turns back uh, max to treatments and then ultimately to uh, a or multiple vaccines. Anything new uh, on that front that we should be paying attention to?
4: Um. You know, the, we're overall, I'd say the situation is, is pretty close to what it's been in recent weeks where we're, we're sort of still waiting for the beginning of, of these sort of big confirmatory trials. The news today that uh, Moderna aims to start its trial on, on July 27th. So that would be the first really big trial in the U.S. and a significant step on, on the path to seeing whether that vaccine works. But uh, the thing I always like to highlight is, you know, it's impossible to say how long that that trial will take you know it's a big endeavor 30,000 people and, and on top of that it's really difficult to handicap the possibility of success um both because you know the the metrics of possible success we're using right now are those antibody levels um you know the comparison for people that have made it through the virus that that's a metric that we don't necessarily know is valid so again just highlights that it's going to be a wait, and there there's significant uncertainty, especially given how rapidly these programs have progressed relative to the norm for vaccine development.
1: A lot of talk about children with you know back to school sort of insights and and not insights in other places. What about children? What do we know about how much they transmit this disease these days?
4: Um, you know, again, still something where where the evidence is evolving and and not conclusive. Um, I, I think it, it's broadly correct to say that the children are at substantially lower risk of, of severe consequences of infection. Um, that, that's that been a pretty consistent finding. Whether it's no risk um, is, is still is probably not the case. And then the broader question about uh, beyond, you know, the level of risk, um, is, is the fact that, you know, in, in starting up school, you're encouraging a lot more travel. You have to think about teachers. Um, so overall, even if uh, children are, are relatively less vulnerable, um, if you don't have the virus contained, it's still going to be, in, in one way or another, um, pretty seriously unsafe uh, to open schools broadly.
1: Max, it's always a pleasure to have you on. I really don't know how you find the time to read everything and keep up with everything. It's just constant and a very difficult job these days as well. Max Neeson is biotech pharma and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. And he's up with all the latest news surrounding the coronavirus and, you know, every single drug trial that's underway. And and really, you have the whole world on the case of this, Paul. And it's, uh, you know, it's I don't know when we last saw a global effort as, you know, Uh, hefty as the one we're seeing right now. It's just a matter of when we'll get something that will break through.
0: When you think about the industries that have been hardest hit uh, by the coronavirus, the airline industry is certainly front and center among them. And we had some earnings out this morning from Delta Airlines that just confirmed how difficult things are. Delta shares are off 2.5% today and off 55% year to date. To dig into that and all things aerospace and airlines, we welcome George Ferguson, Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, George, let's start off with Delta. Boy, what's the takeaway here?
5: Uh, yeah, Paul. Thanks. Uh, I think the big takeaway from Delta was uh, they're burning about twenty-seven million dollars a day wow. as they close the quarter. They still they want to push that to break even by year end, um, but that's going to require more demand. They they explicitly said you know the the components going into sort of driving it to zero is more demand, and demand is petering out. They confirmed for us. We've kind of been watching schedules and load factors, and it looks like. U.S. airlines have added a lot of capacity in the last uh, sort of couple of weeks, uh, you know, as we started to see this nascent recovery in, uh, in travel. Uh, but look, with the cropping up of, uh, of, of outbreaks in the south and the west and quarantine still in effect overseas, you know, we're concerned that it's, it's going to start to peter out and Delta kind of confirmed that. And so it's, a, it's going to be a long road. Delta even said that, right? It's a, it's a long road. They're talking 18 months uh, to get to sort of, you know, I think reasonable travel levels are not talking 2019 levels are talking reasonable travel levels and we haven't seen business come back business flying demand come back and that's really important at Delta. They said 50% of revenues is business, you know, we, we kind of thought something around there. So I, I think those are the big takeaways from today. It's still a lot more, a lot more distance to travel for recovery for this industry.
1: George, Delta saying 17,000 workers have now signed up to leave the airline and it's parked more than 700 aircraft. How much smaller will the future Delta be?
5: I think, again, again, that's a really hard question, right? It's a function of of the bounce back in demand. Um, And and right now, you know, we still have sort of uh, an industry that's that's flying 20, 25 percent of the passengers that they flew last year at this time. Um, I do think people will get more comfortable flying here in time, even if we don't have a vaccine or an effective treatment. The question is how much you you may have to shrink some of these airlines by 50 percent. for a couple of years here while you, you know, 50 or 40% while you wait for uh, demand to come back. So they've come a long way, but there's more distance to travel. And we think, look, four Qs when you're really going to start to see um, adjustments to the workforce because that's when the CARES Act money uh, that's basically subsidizing all their labor goes away.
0: All right, George, I guess it's time to go to the, the balance sheet discussion here. If, if this demand is going to uh, perhaps come back slower than expected, we have to start looking at which airlines can, can really weather the storm. So kind of how are you looking at that right now? Yeah,
5: look, they've all put on a lot of cash over the last bunch of months. Um, I've actually been uh, pretty impressed with how receptive credit markets have been for these um, airlines. Many of them, you know, um, are in the tens, you know, between 10 and 20 billion worth of uh, liquidity. And so uh, Delta said today they had 18 months worth of liquidity. Um, which obviously I think it probably puts them in in pretty good order. We'll watch very closely as we go through earnings season for cash burn and how long they can last. Delta entered the downturn with a better balance sheet and therefore more ability to get, um, to, you know, to bring more cash out of their balance sheet. I was pretty impressed they talked about adjusting even their credit lines so that some of those covenants don't trip them up. Um, I think again being an investment grade company going into the downturn helps you a lot. Leisure is going to perform better than business too and so I think a bunch of the leisure carriers that are that are, uh, have good balance sheets, companies like Southwest and such are sort sure of prepared well to get through uh, the downturn uh, for a longer period of time.
1: George, Davidson Kempner the US hedge fund injected about million or so into Virgin Atlantic to try and rescue the company along with Richard Branson himself. What's the value proposition for Davidson there?
5: Uh, you know, I think you know the, the value proposition of Persian Atlantic is really Heathrow slots, and so look, today it doesn't matter as much right, because nobody's um, sort of jumping all over themselves to get more Heathrow slots. To, international is dead, but when the when the world recovers and and demand comes back again, you know, look, it may not come back fully, but it comes back in large proportions. That Heathrow will be another uh, will have another be another choke point in sort of the, the world. Route network Heathrow has always been that way. There's a lot of demand again into Heathrow, and I think that's what Virgin Atlantic really, really brings. It also brings it to Delta, by the way, because Delta was an investor in there, and I imagine they'll still have a decent relationship, even though the equity investment might get uh, is going to get adjusted here.
1: It's so interesting uh, following industries as they have to adapt to the environment. Yeah. Uh, George, thank you so much for all of your expertise. George Ferguson is senior aerospace, defense, and airline analyst, and for all of the you know consultants and so on that have gone into com- companies over the last several years and you know re-strategized and changed the strategy. I mean, something like a global pandemic yeah. comes along and that just all goes out the window and you have to start from scratch again. It's a really. You know, interesting thing to watch, particularly when there's really no industry that's not affected by this. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn.
0: And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.